the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How goes it, folks? It's a late night, and I'm digging through the archives, finding some of the better interviews that I've done. Not better, but maybe the ones that stood out to me. And when we had the interview with James Torme, one of the singers that he said to look out for would be Brenna Whitaker. And I listened back to that interview, and I thought it was worth bringing out again. It's from last summer, the end of last summer, so it's not a year yet. But for those of you born in the 80s, 90s, or the aughts, that more modern generation who still like the great singers of yesteryear, the great jazz and blues singers, Brenna Whitaker is just what the doctor ordered. Great singer, great recording artist, and I hope you enjoy the interview. You're plugged into the Paul Leslie Hour, your source for interviews on the arts, culture, and entertainment. Our guest, Brenna Whitaker, was introduced to us through past guest, James Torme. She's a singer. I would kind of describe her as a mix of jazz, a little soul, a little blues. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. What a treat. Oh, it's an honor, believe me. So you're a mother now. I am. It's pretty wild. It's something I've always wanted to do. And, you know, with the gigging and career and late nights and it never really, I just had to do it. So it's time for that magical moment. So what's it like (laughs) being a mother and an entertainer? Well, you have to reorganize everything, um, but I'm fortunate that my partner is able to tour with me, so it's kind of like a team effort. You have to have like a teammate and a lot of help. I'm really close with my family, my band, all of starting to have kids, so we're kind of a kid-friendly entourage, so it's fun. Let's go back a little bit. You are from Kansas City, correct? I am from Kansas City, Missouri, is where I'm born and raised. And I'm actually here working on my second album right now. And yeah, just sort of raising a kid in L.A. got a little weird. So we're just taking it easy in the Midwest right now. What about L.A. makes it weird to be raising a kid? Well, you know, it's (laughs) not... And any kid I have is going to naturally be weird. So, (laughs) but I just think the traffic and the cost of living, I'd rather put it, put the time and the money into the family rather than the hustle, if you will. Yeah, my whole band, everybody tours anyway. So everybody's on the road at different times. So it kind of made sense just to, take a step back while I, I just had the baby's 25 days old today. Oh, wow. So, and he's a little boy. Yeah, so L.A.'s a hard place, you know, to to live in general. But as a musician, we're all kind of vagabonds anyway, so it doesn't really matter where you live, really. 
I don't think in 2017 because everything is internet and touring. Are you singing to your little boy? I just was, yes, on the front porch. <laughs> I haven't as much as I thought I would, would, but I have to kind of be like, hey, this is your job now. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to grow up hearing you sing directly to him. So tell us, what about the music you grew up listening to? What was it that you liked the most? Well, I have always been heavily inspired by comedic blues, people like Pearl Bailey and Ruth Brown, kind of that had a little attitude. So, But then I love the lush, standard ballads that make you cry and think. So people like Nancy Wilson, who are almost like method actors that happen to be incredible vocalists. I know James from his dad. And it's so cool living in L.A., running into people that, you know, that's the joy of living in L.A. is you run into some of your heroes and their siblings and their family and you get to kind of hear some more stories. But uh, I'm Peggy Lee's huge for me, Cab Calloway. Alita Adams is one of my favorites these days. Just very serious singers. I've always been attracted to, even as an 11-year-old girl. Probably a very difficult question. If yeah, there, if there it were, is. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you, if there was one song that you could pick to represent what it is that you do, if you had a way you Ooh. could sing to the whole world, but you had to pick one number, which one would you pick and why? Well... Being from Kansas, I've relied heavily on my ruby slippers and everything involving the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So that's kind of the one, even if I'm in, you know, Japan or Germany, and they don't speak the language, but everyone knows that song, and it sort of has this message in it that, of hope. So probably that one. That one, if I had, you know, if there was one song all over the world that I could give a universal message of peace and love and we're all the same, probably somewhere over the rainbow. I wanted to talk a little bit about David Foster. Yes. How did he come to discover your music? Well, you know, I have a reputation in Hollywood for kind of putting together bands and nights in places where you wouldn't expect them. But I had a residency for three years in Hollywood at the W Hotel, and it was every Sunday night. And we sort of transformed the lobby into like a James Bond, my little big band, with, and everybody would sit in, we'd have eight horn players and a lot of celebrities, and that's how David kind of heard of me, through me doing the L.A. shuffle and just, what do they say, you create your own luck. <laughs> so I just worked really hard, and fortunately, the right people. Michael Buble is a friend of mine, and so is Josh Groban, and they've been very supportive. So naturally, it was sort of just, I like manifested David Foster. 
Yeah. What is he like? He is like working with kind of what I would maybe describe it as working with a director, like a if you're making a movie, and he, uh, you know, goes by feelings, and he's incredible. I mean, it's he's a very cinematic composer and a wonderful person. He's a very close with his family and. You know, he's wild. He's, he's, I guess you could call him a genius. He's incredible. He's a wonderful friend of mine. I'm really fortunate I got to work with him. You've recorded at Capitol Studios. I imagine you've recorded at other studios as well. What is the experience like to go into a studio and put something down? A permanent recording. Well, you know, that is one of the perks of living in Los Angeles is sort of the history. Um, I recorded at Jim Henson's studio and Capitol numerous times throughout the past couple of years. But it's, you know, to walk in and Frank Sinatra's microphone, they have, you know, a 47 that is famous. And the pictures and the smell of the coffee and it smells like a green room and it's absolutely a dream to be in those rooms. But at Jim Henson, I was singing one of Kermit the Frog's song on my album, It's Not That Easy Being Green, which I love the message in that song, but it was so cool to record there and then see Kermit, you know, and the whole Jim Henson enterprise kind of supporting that message as well it was it's unbelievable do you think that these more classic styles of music are going to survive in our modern age well you know i really hope so it's different in europe and in asia they seem to really support it there i would say probably more than even in america so as long as I'm alive, I'm going to I'm going to cherish the messages and the the composers of that time and kind of, you know, with all the technology and the new stuff, I think it's refreshing for people to kind of step backwards into time. And I don't really see that going out of style. I actually find that my generation, I'm 35 years old. I'm finding that people really do want to kind of step back a little bit from all of the, you know, information overload. Sometimes I think the simplicity of uh, even something like raising a kid, I feel like my friends and peers are all wanting to go kind of back in time a little bit. So that's where I'm, I'm interpreting music as I like to celebrate going back in time. <laughs> You've had a number of very famous people who've joined you on stage. John Mayer, mm-hmm. for example, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Tell me, is it intimidating yeah. to share a stage with people like that? It is, but, you know, the I understand just from time and experience the struggle that it takes to get not to, you know, Stevie Wonder level, but, you know, he's been working since he was, I think his first album, he was 12 or 13. And same with John Mayer. He's been working since he was a teenager. And I 
started in the theater at 11. So I kind of understand the ups and downs of it, but it was absolutely like being, I describe it a lot like being in a UFO, like you've been abducted by aliens. (laughs) And it's just very out of body. But then, you know, especially when they sing and share their instrument with your audience, with you on stage, it's sort of like this, you know, you can't help but give give them what you've gotten from their presence. And Stevie Wonder, I I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't been touched by Stevie Wonder. So it was sort of like, I have to show you, Stevie, how much I appreciate. Um, and the first time I met him, he got on stage and did five songs with my band. And I did, I knew he was going to maybe come. So I planned this song called I Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer. And it was one of the more obscure ones that he's ever done. And it, his ex-wife actually wrote it. And she died of cancer. And so we got to sit and have this intimate conversation about about her, which was really cool. And John Mayer, to me, is just, you know, absolutely... He's developed this amazing career where he's like the Eric Clapton for my generation and I admire that so much because it takes a lot of strength to to uh, get through that hump of pop music and what am I and I'm a jazz nerd, but you know I gotta sell albums and I'm also handsome and I'm a you know so all of those kind of torturous things that could happen to you as a musician just to kind of like clear the slate and just be a musician. I admire that so much of John Mayer. So I was a little bit kind of starstruck majorly with John Mayer. My facial expressions, some people got some pictures and <laughs> it probably it says it all. But well, who would you like to perform with that you haven't yet? You know, I'm living in Kansas City right now, and I, there's actually a great music community here. And it's a bunch of guys who, and women, but they, you know, they choose to work every night rather than struggle in a city where, like Los Angeles, where you, it, you can have a great life here in Kansas City and still be a, a seasoned jazz musician. But there's a woman named Alita Adams, and she lives in Kansas City. And she has a version of this song, Everything Must Change. I would love to work with her one day or do something with her. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about this album that you mentioned earlier in the interview. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually based on the song. It's The album will be titled Everything Must Change. And every song that, you know, in the past five years of kind of being a career girl and then becoming a mother and deciding to step away from Los Angeles and just what that kind of all means to and getting older, seeing more of the world and trying to be a light, you know, when there's so much darkness in the world. It's all the songs that kind of speak to me in that bubble. So I'm doing like accentuate the positive 
and a couple gospel ones. And so it's a very poignant kind of adult reflection on my favorite standards of that. So it's, a, it's an extension of the first album I did with David. But it'll just be beautiful. It'll be another great car CD. I still listen to CDs. <laughs> but uh, Me too. <laughs> yeah, good. People make fun of me. They're like, you have a CD player even? I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's but, the... yeah. Well, how do you feel about that change that's taken in music where everything now is digital, whereas... There was a time when you'd go to the store to buy an album. It definitely, I think when there's too much information, then certain things get lost, which is why when you pull out a 12-song CD, you can kind of, I think, focus more attention on a, on an actual you know, storyline of an album. But I feel like, unfortunately, the days of the storyline of an album are kind of, they've dwindled. But I, I mean, I think music lovers are naturally going to go. They're going to find it regardless, even with vinyl and vinyls come back. And I'm an 80s baby. So CDs to me naturally, that's how I, when I was 15 and I fell madly in love with music, they were all CDs. So there's like a nostalgic thing for CDs, definitely for my earliest memories of music. So, but you know, Apple Music is incredible. You can type in anything you want, but my brain doesn't work that quickly. I, I'm, I guess, slower <laughs> and more old-fashioned. What is something that you used to care about that now you don't care about? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, living in Los Angeles, I don't care well, I've never really cared about the the hustle. I know you have to hustle at a certain point in your career to develop a career, but the whole chasing chasing the record label and um chasing the record deal and I think those days it kind of takes away from the music if you decide to chase the old mold of the music industry. You're better off focusing on the music and your family and and uh, your fellow musicians and, of course, your audience. I think it's more about the audience than the actual music industry anymore, which is kind of sad because it used to be exciting. And But for me, you know, the, the goal from the time I was 11 was to get the record deal and to get the that you know, to sign that contract. And it has been kind of a sad, somber. It was not what I expected at all. But I guess that's in anything. You you learn and you grow and you age, hopefully gracefully. But yeah, I it's, you know, the you need the big New Orleans funeral band for the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately what is a jazz audience like how would you describe them versus maybe the mainstream pop music fan well my favorite thing to do is you know after a show kind of meet your audience 
And I just love these 20-something, you know, 30-something people or even people that bring their six-year-old kids to my show. I love, you know, people really do love this body of music and and the young ones. They They actually, I think, are starving for some form of substance musically that isn't in the pop industry. It's just not in the, when you turn on the pop radio, you're not, I don't know if you're going to be emotionally touched in your core about a, anything happening in the world. It's all just sort of a fluffy, saccharine, but everything sounds the same. And I, I listen to the radio, so I know, I know what's going on, but it's just, you're not going to hear Fleetwood Mac or Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd. You're not going to be touched in the way you might be touched by even someone like Sheryl Crow or, you know, in pop music. But yeah, I could talk for days about that subject. (laughs) (laughs) What is the biggest compliment you've ever received as a musician? Well, I, I'm so lucky. I've had these crazy. I just Billy D. Williams is a regular of mine from from Star Wars, and he got to play Billy Holiday's husband in in that movie. Was it what was the title of that? The Lady Sings the Blues. Was it the Billy Holiday? Seems co- anyway. He. I think that's a. That, I think that's it. Yeah, it was the Billie Holiday story, and Billie Dee Williams played her husband, and he he told me that my version of "God Bless the Child" was the best one he's ever heard, and I love that song. Is another one that's going to go on my second album. Just I feel like the message in that song is so current with what's going on in the world today. But to get compliments like that from people who obviously have researched a character and a story and a a person, you know, their history. I love when the actual person, you know, the somebody who knows gives you a compliment like that. It's always that's probably the most current one that I can think of. But I really was like, Who, me? Thanks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm not very good with compliments, but naturally that, you know, I'll take it. For anyone who's listening to this interview, wherever they may be, however old they might be, whoever this person is, very open-ended, what would you say to that person? I would say, you know, just just love your, just love your, your life. I mean, it's so much easier, I think, to just to be good and to want to be good. But with all the, especially musically, it's just go for the glory and the, the good stuff. And not everything is bad in the world. There are so many good people and so many good things happening. But just, you know, staying positive is a big thing. Today, I think people are kind of struggling with everything that's happening. Yeah. What is the best way to stay positive? 
Well, for me personally, I'm a big dog person and I love children. So the more children and dogs I have in my life, and of course food, (laughs) then, you know, family is so important. I think just keeping to your core of and keeping your authentic self alive through dogs and music and babies and family. So I think that's what helps me personally. Who is Brenna Whitaker? You know, what's funny. I read your bio and Elliot is one of your people. Elliot Mintz. Yes. The great Elliot Mintz. And he, you even sound like him. (laughs) He's, he actually is a friend of mine. He lives in the hills in Bel Air and he's been to my show through one of my closest girlfriends. He's one of their family friends. And he's such a fascinating, I've been in his house with all of his books and, but you remind me of him. Well, thank you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait. I'm going to tell him to listen to the show. The question, I'm sorry, was who is, who the hell am I? (laughs) (laughs) Those are your your Uh, words. Well, in elementary school, I was a chubby kid and my my elementary school crush called, decided to give me the nickname Big Bad Brenna. Ooh. So it's a gift and a curse because I've carried that my whole life, but in sort of the Ruth Brown way or the Pearl Bailey way where, you know, the class. But anyway, I... I think I'm just still that chubby 11-year-old girl trying to figure out where I fit in and how I can help in the world. So I just sort of ask for direction from God every day and say, take me where I should go. And somehow I've developed this incredible life where I get to travel and sing my favorite songs and now I have a baby. So I guess, I guess that's who I am. It's just, is that. Thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. And thanks, James, for introducing us. Yes, thank you, James. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I know you have a baby boy, so you're very busy. Thanks for spending time with us, and I hope we get to connect again. Yes. I'll send you my new album. Please do. Yes. Thanks, Paul. All right. My pleasure. Bye, sweetie. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.